0: Hi, I'm Rochelle Young.
1: And I'm Sam Tracy.
0: And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy.
1: This Week in Drugs is a weekly podcast meant to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy.
0: And hopefully, to have some fun while we're doing it.
1: We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. We'll be starting off today's episode with a rundown of the biggest drug news from the last week and a forecast for what's coming up. Then, we'll be looking closely at the science and social history of marijuana, our Drug of the Week. Next up is our roundtable discussion with guests Zara Snap and Sanho Tree, two experts on international drug policy. And we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs and drug policy is great, it's nothing if we're not using that knowledge to make positive change. So thank you for joining us for episode two of This Week in Drugs. All right, everybody, now it's time for our weekly news and forecast. So Rochelle and I have each picked out a few big drug-related stories from this week, along with a couple of things to look forward to. Uh, So Rochelle, do you want to start us off?
0: Sure, Sam. For the first story this week, it's kind of equal parts funny and depressing. What I will be talking about is a new anti-drug campaign targeted at teens that features only emojis. So the campaign was launched last week by the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids Uh, The same people who brought you the This Is Your Brain On Drugs ads back in the day. Each ad has a plain yellow background and then a string of emojis. I know that I sent you one example, Sam, of one of these ads. Can you describe it to us?
1: Yeah, I'm honestly, I've been struggling to understand what this even means. But I just see some eyes, uh, one, ant, maybe that's want, peace sign, uh, muscles, and an inbox with a peach.
0: Okay, so apparently what that ad means is i want to be t- i want to fit in so that flexed arm is fit and the inbox is in but so the peach is a butt mm-hmm. i don't want to smoke
1: why is oh cuz peaches look like butts yeah. that's why <laughs> apparently <laughs> like the house of cards petroid exactly. thing okay
0: so um but yeah <laughs> so it's kind of a process to decode these new ads allegedly you know teenagers are better at it than like us young adults are and while it lacks Mm -hmm. the blatant fear-mongering element we've come to expect from these types of anti-drug ads it still relies solely on an abstinence-only message so I feel like as a teenager I probably would have felt like it was more condescending than relatable
1: yeah this is a really strange one and I mean I hope that it's the kids actually do understand this but I wonder if it is just a bunch of anti-drug people trying to be hip and kids also have no idea what they're trying to say
0: Um. I could definitely see, see, it, see it going that way. as just a lot more money wasted in the war on drugs.
1: Mm-hmm. More of the same. And actually, uh, so our next story is actually also about some more of the same in the war on drugs. Uh, this past weekend, uh, El Chapo, who is the head of the Sinaloa drug cartel, uh, actually broke out of prison for the second time in Mexico. And so he had escaped through a hole in his shower floor, uh, which led down to this mile long tunnel that exited at a construction site. And so, as I said, this is actually the second time that this uh, drug lord has escaped from a Mexican prison, uh, the first time being back in 2001. So it really just goes to show how deep the corruption in the criminal justice system there goes, since it's pretty much a certainty that insiders helped him out or at least uh, turned a blind eye when he was very obviously trying planning a breakout.
0: Yeah, and this shows not just how deeply the corruption goes in the criminal justice system, but like on an, on a whole other level how futile trying to fight the war on drugs by capturing these drug lords is. We talk sometimes within the movement about how when you eliminate one drug lord, another one just pops up and that's kind of a futile way to try and win this war, but apparently so is even capturing that drug lord. Like
1: yeah, because if you arrest them, if they're powerful enough, they won't stay arrested for long. And then uh, if they're not so powerful, they're incredibly easy to replace. And so this has also strained a lot of relationships between the the U.S. and Mexico, because uh, the U.S. was actually pushing for him to be extradited to the United States uh, beforehand, and Mexico refused, thinking that they could handle it. And uh, obviously that wasn't really the case, so we'll see how this ends up impacting the the broader international war on drugs as well
0: well I, I hope it doesn't chill the talks that we've been having recently about reforming international drug policy so on to the next news item this one is a lot more related to mainstream drugs the kinds that most people don't really think of when they hear the words drugs um so the fda just last week decided to strengthen the warning labels on some of america's most popular over-the-counter painkillers Um, So the stronger labeling language would apply to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. More commonly, you would think of them as ibuprofen or naproxen, which is the active ingredient in Aleve. So these are really common over-the-counter painkillers. And according to an FDA spokesperson, the difference between the old warning labels and the new one is that the old warning labels used to say that these drugs might cause a risk of heart attack or stroke, and now we know for sure that they do cause an increased risk of heart attack and stroke. This probably doesn't seem like a huge distinction to most drug users, but I think it's an interesting story, which just goes to show that even the most common drugs do include like important health risks that you need to consider, and this is something we talk about when we talk about like how to treat currently illicit drugs, is the, the health risks that go with them, and to show that the FDA is constantly revising their regulations and standards even amongst the most common household drugs
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really good to see actually Because uh, while I think that the, the war on drugs is terrible I, th- I think that uh, labeling is one of the most important things that we can do And that should be totally non-controversial to both you know, the progressives and the libertarians within the movement So it's good to see that this is also being applied to things that people may have uh, mistakenly believed were uh, totally harmless before
0: Yeah, definitely. And the takeaway from the FDA is that they want you to know, which you should have already, is uh, not to use multiple products containing these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So just read those labels carefully.
1: So our last news story for this week is that President Obama on Thursday has actually become the first president in history to visit a prison while in office. And so he toured a medium security federal prison in Oklahoma, uh, meeting with both officials there and actually a group of six prisoners who are uh, there for nonviolent drug offenses. And his statements during this were actually really empathetic and saying after the meeting, and I quote, when they describe their youth and their childhood, these are young people who made the same who made mistakes that aren't that different than the mistakes I made and the mistakes that a lot of you guys made. And this is he was talking to press and other officials there. And uh, I mean, this is especially uh, important just because Obama has been the most open about his you know, youthful drug use than other presidents. And he admitted to uh, being a big marijuana enthusiast and also having uh, tried cocaine a couple of times. And so it's very likely that, especially as a young black man, he could have been arrested for this and obviously would not be president today. And uh, so it's really great to see that he's actually making history here and making this more of an issue.
0: I think it's especially impactful also that he made this visit on the same week that he also granted clemency to 40-some nonviolent drug offenders, which is something we told you guys to look out for last week. So um, this is Obama really Walking the walk (laughs) as far as criminal justice reform and really making that connection between uh, the harms of the current war on drugs and needing to overhaul the criminal justice system overall.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is really fantastic. It seems like in his last, what do we have left, a a year or two of his presidency, he's finally, you know, coming through on a lot of the promises that he made and expectations that we'd have of him being a bit more, uh, you know, radical with what his approach is. And I'm hoping that he really uh, takes his criminal justice reform pretty far.
0: Definitely. Can't wait to see what else he has for the rest of his term. And now on to the weekly forecast. So, next week or the the next couple days should be pretty tense for those in the uh cannabis business which tend to not speak too much about the marijuana business side because lots of other um news mediums are covering them already but licenses for medical marijuana businesses are expected to be announced any day now in three states new york new mexico and florida uh, new York and Florida's programs are brand new, and each state allows only five growers. So it's been an incredibly competitive process, um, and these will be the first growers to receive licenses in those states. Unlike New York and Florida, New Mexico has had a medical marijuana program since 2007. However, Due to the limited number of state-licensed cultivators previously allowed, there were always chronic shortages in supply. So this is the first time that the, the state of New Mexico is accepting new applications for cultivators since the initial licensing process.
1: Awesome. Looking forward to seeing those. And uh, staying in the strain of uh, sticking with marijuana business stuff for the forecast, uh, it was actually just announced that Ralph Nader, the legendary consumer advocate and former Green Party candidate for president, is going to be keynoting the fourth annual Marijuana Business Conference and Exposition uh, in Las Vegas this November. And this is held by Marijuana Business Daily, which is one of the big trade publications in the industry. Uh, And this is one of the biggest, most professional events in the marijuana industry, uh, one that I always go to and uh, a lot of other businesses uh, are always sure to attend. So it's really great to see. Mr. Nader lending his credibility to legalization and uh, pushing for responsible regulation. So I hope this is a sign of him getting uh, more involved in this issue, uh, because I think it's one that he's been kind of supportive of, but hasn't really been too outspoken on before. Uh, So I really look forward to seeing him speak, and I encourage other folks to uh, attend that conference and check him out with me.
0: Awesome. And where and when is this conference again, Sam, in case people are interested in checking it out?
1: Uh, It's in mid-November in Las Vegas. Awesome.
0: Awesome. So that's been our weekly news and forecast. While we're always following the news about the drug war, there's so much happening that it's hard to keep track of it all. So if you, are listeners, see a good news story or hear about an upcoming event that you'd like us to know about, send it to us on social media or email us at thisweekindrugs@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And we may include it in next week's show. the drug of the week where we look into the origin science history legal status and current uses of a different drug each week this week's drug of the week has dominated discussions about drug policy reform received more political and media attention this year than ever before and is seeing an unprecedented acceptance in modern society it even appeared on the covers of time magazine and national geographic in may nevertheless it is still widely misunderstood by many So this week, of course, we'll be delving a little deeper into the plant known as cannabis, or marijuana. This is a drug very near and dear to my heart, but for not the reasons you might suspect. For those listeners who don't know me, I got my professional start in the drug policy movement when I interned for the Amendment 64 campaign in 2012, which led to the historic legalization of marijuana in Colorado. My first job out of law school was with the Marijuana Policy Project. So I could speak for hours and hours about the law and policy surrounding marijuana. But that doesn't make me an expert on its cultivation, history, or even use. So as I was preparing for today's show, I glanced around at the intimidating stacks of marijuana-related books that have accumulated over the years, let alone the infinite resources available online, and thought to myself, how could I possibly condense all that information into 10 minutes? The answer, of course, is that I can't. Far more has been written and said about cannabis than we could possibly cover this episode. So there will surely be more marijuana focused episodes to come, but today we're simply providing an overview. For other podcasts that are specific to marijuana policy, news, and business, you can check out Marijuana Today, the Forefront podcast, or Canna Insider. Now, on to today's Drug of the Week. First and foremost, cannabis is a plant. It's native to Central and South Asia, but is now ubiquitous across the globe. While cannabis is known in pop culture and throughout society for its distinctive, star-shaped leaf, it is in fact its chunky and appealing flowers that provide the high. These flowers are more commonly known as the buds. Traditionally, the cannabis plant has been categorized into three distinct species. Cannabis sativa, Cannabis indica, and Cannabis ruderalis, colloquially known as hemp. Since hemp does not produce a psychoactive effect, and is in fact not a drug, we'll leave that one aside for now. I should note at this point that so-called synthetic marijuana, such as K2 and Spice, is also not marijuana, so we won't be talking about those today either. But keep tuning in because we may discuss synthetic marijuanas in the future. So, back to cannabis species. What purportedly are the differences between sativa and indica? According to common wisdom, sativas grow taller and are more loosely branched, with long, narrow leaves, and are said to produce a more cerebral, uplifting high. Meanwhile, indica plants are shorter and bushier, with broader leaves, and produce a heavier, more relaxed body high. Indicas are sometimes humorously referred to as "indie couch strains. However, as I've alluded to, recent research indicates that there may not actually be science-based differences between the two. Regardless, the method for turning these plants into consumable products is the same, and relatively straightforward. In the spirit of an overview, this is the most simplified version of cultivation and curing of the plants that I will give. So mature buds are harvested, trimmed of excess leaves, and then cured. Once the buds have been broken down, they can be smoked, vaporized, or infused into edible or topical products. Again, we're just providing an overview here, so I understand that this is an oversimplification of the process of cultivating marijuana plants. Now, let's talk a little bit more about edibles. THC, the primary psychoactive component in marijuana, is fat-soluble and alcohol-soluble. Meaning, to extract it from the plant, it must be infused into either a fatty substance, like oil or butter, or alcohol. This is why cannabis butter is the basis for so many edible recipes. Making cannabis tea, on the other hand, would be a really inefficient means of extraction because water doesn't absorb THC. The fact that THC is fat-soluble rather than water-soluble is also the reason THC stays in people's system long after they've smoked and are no longer intoxicated. Unlike other drugs that pass through systems quickly when they drink fluids and then urinate, or sweat, THC is stored in a person's fat cells. It may show up in a urine test up to two weeks after last use, and even longer for regular users. As a side note on this topic, this may be leading to an unintended consequence of marijuana prohibition. Because marijuana is stored for so long in the human body, some substance users who prefer marijuana may instead be reaching for more dangerous, often experimental drugs that they can quickly flush out of their system and so that it will go undetected in a drug screening. Our lawmakers should really consider how current prohibition policies are incentivizing people to actually experiment with harder drugs. Ingesting marijuana can produce a broad range of effects, depending on the individual and the strain. Physical effects can include an increased heart rate, dry mouth, bloodshot eyes, hunger, reduced pain, reduced nausea, and even a reduction in seizure activity. Psychoactive effects vary even more wildly and can range from relaxation and euphoria Reduced anxiety or increased anxiety and paranoia to more intangible effects like philosophical thinking, introspection, and metacognition. The effects of marijuana are primarily produced by cannabinoids, the naturally occurring chemical compounds in cannabis. To date, researchers have discovered more than 80 cannabinoids, but the most commonly known is, of course, tetrahydrocannabinol or THC. Cannabidiol or CBD is also getting a lot of attention recently because of increasing evidence of its ability to treat intractable epileptic disorders. Other than cannabinoids like THC and CBD, cannabis also contains terpenes and flavonoids, which are found in the plant's essential oils. In addition to contributing to each strain's specific flavors and odor, terpenes and flavonoids may also possess some mild therapeutic effects. THC and other psychoactive cannabinoids are contained in the buds, trichomes, Trichomes cover the outside of marijuana buds and look like little white sugar crystals to the naked eye. Generally speaking, the denser the trichomes, the more potent the marijuana. The coolest thing about humans using cannabis is that the human body actually contains a system of neurotransmitters that specifically responds to cannabinoids. It's called the endocannabinoid system. The physiological reason a person experiences a high after ingesting marijuana is because the cannabinoids interact with individual receptors of the endocannabinoid system, called CB1 and CB2 receptors. The CB1 receptors are located primarily in the brain and regulate the drug's psychoactive effects. CB2 receptors are located throughout the human body and are responsible for the drug's more tangential therapeutic effects. Naturally occurring chemicals in the human body, called endocannabinoids, also interact with CB1 and CB2 receptors to regulate many essential biological functions, including appetite, blood pressure, and reproduction. The majority of the body's CB1 receptors are located in the frontal lobe of the brain and the cerebellum, which regulate emotional behavior and motor control, respectively, but not in the brainstem, which controls life-preserving functions like breathing. That's why ingesting marijuana is not physically capable of causing a fatal overdose, regardless of THC potency. A report by the World Health Organization indicated that the estimated lethal dose is so high that it cannot be achieved by recreational users. Marijuana's LD50, as in the amount it would take to cause death, is estimated to be somewhere between 20,000 and 40,000. That means it would take 20 to 40,000 times as much marijuana as is contained in an average joint to kill someone. Most researchers, and most marijuana users, agree that you would pass the F out before ever ingesting that amount. Today, marijuana is the most widely used illicit substance in the United States, with 49% of Americans having admitted to trying it at least once, and about 7% having used it in the past month. But using cannabis is hardly a new phenomenon. Evidence of marijuana cultivation dates all the way back to 7000 BC in China. Shout out to my ancestors for starting that trend. Recently, archaeologists in Central Asia discovered more than 2,000 pounds of cannabis in the 3,000-year-old grave of an ancient shaman. After extensive testing, scientists concluded that the cannabis was being used for medicinal and euphoric purposes. The first written reference to cannabis was also in China around 2000 BC. Around that same time, cannabis made an appearance in the Hindu holy texts, the Vedas, Some historians believe that by the 10th century, cannabis was known in India as the food of the gods. In the 20th century, the Rastafari movement embraced cannabis, called ganja, as a sacrament. Rastas believe that the use of ganja cleans the body and mind, heals the soul, exalts the consciousness, facilitates peacefulness, brings pleasure, and brings them closer to jaw. The history of current marijuana prohibition is sadly rooted in racism. The very, very, very abbreviated version is that Mexican farmers in the 1920s would use cannabis after work to relax. Prejudice against Mexican migrants in the South and Southwest translated into skepticism for their um, loco weed. The word marijuana is itself a holdover from that prejudice. The term was popularized by Harry Anslinger, America's first drug czar, to make the plant sound more Mexican and play off of anti-immigrant sentiments. To highlight how closely tied marijuana prohibition is to racist sentiment, I will read you this direct quote from Anslinger when he testified to Congress in support of outlawing it. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing results from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and others. Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. Let's take a moment to absorb and recognize how steeped in completely unabashed racism that statement was. I can't even believe I said it out loud, it's so appalling. The fact that, to this day, African Americans are nearly four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than a white person across the United States, even though blacks and whites use marijuana at similar rates, makes the history of marijuana prohibition that much more shameful. Much like alcohol prohibition in the 1920s, marijuana prohibition has been a failure on every level. Despite costing taxpayers billions of dollars in law enforcement, marijuana prohibition has utterly failed to reduce use. And in fact, marijuana-related violence has increased dramatically in recent years, with gangs and cartels almost exclusively in control of the market. Fortunately, the past two decades have seen a shift towards more sensible marijuana policy. Beginning with California in 1996, states from coast to coast have legalized cannabis to varying degrees for medicinal use. And in 2012, Colorado and Washington became the first two jurisdictions in the world to completely legalize marijuana for adult use. Today, 23 states plus D.C., Guam, and Puerto Rico have effective medical marijuana laws. Nineteen states and the U.S. Virgin Islands have removed criminal penalties and the threat of jail time for the simple possession of marijuana. And Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, and the District of Columbia allow for the regulated adult use of marijuana. In 2016, it's likely that voters in California, Nevada, Arizona, Maine, and Massachusetts will also get to decide whether to tax and regulate marijuana similarly to alcohol. Of course, outside the United States, The Netherlands has been leading the way on more sensible drug policies since the 1970s. Amsterdam is famous for its cannabis coffee shops, but a little-known fact is that cannabis has never been legal there. Rather, their official policy is one of non-enforcement, with an emphasis on public health. A majority of the Dutch population supports this policy, and notably, the number of drug-related deaths in the country remain amongst the lowest in Europe. More recently, in international developments, Uruguay became the first nation in the world to legalize cannabis. And Jamaica, after suffering decades of prejudice against their sacred herb, finally decriminalized small amounts of ganja earlier this year. The understanding that cannabis, by every scientific measure, is a safer recreational substance than alcohol has been a driver behind marijuana policy reform. Of equal importance is the increasing awareness that marijuana laws are disproportionately enforced against people of color. The future is looking bright, though. As recently as the late 80s and early 90s, when your intrepid co-hosts were born, disapproval of marijuana was at around 80%. Today, nearly the opposite is true. More than 50% of Americans agree that marijuana should be legal, 84 believe that it should be decriminalized, and 88 support medical use of cannabis. We hate the word inevitable because continuing this incredible march towards progress is still going to take a lot of hard work and dedication, but ending marijuana prohibition now seems more likely than ever. We hope that the recent trend towards more sensible marijuana laws will be a catalyst for a more sensible approach to all drug policy and laws.
1: everyone. Now it's time for our weekly roundtable where we bring in some of the top drug policy experts from across the country and across the world to talk about some of the most pressing drug-related issues facing us today. So for today's discussion, we're going to be talking about the global war on drugs, what's happening in countries outside the United States, and how all these countries are interacting with one another on the international stage, pushing for and against reform. And so today I'm really, really excited to have two of the world's top international drug policy experts on with us today. So, first of all, I'd like to introduce Zara Snap, who is the Policy and Communications Officer at the Global Commission on Drug Policy. She's based in Mexico City.
2: Hi, thanks for having me on.
1: Thanks for coming on, Zara. And we've also got Sanho Tree, a Drug Policy Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies based in Washington, D.C. Great to be here. All right, thanks for coming on. And so since this is a kind of introductory episode and a lot of our listeners may not know too much about the international scene yet, I thought it might be a good way to start off by just giving a quick overview of some of the uh, the major, major players on the international stage. So some of the countries that are either pushing for the most radical reforms, both domestically and internationally, and some that are maybe holding the rest of the world back the most. And so, uh, Zara, would you like to talk about just maybe... One or two of countries that stand out as major reformers or uh, major opponents of reform?
2: Sure. So I'm going to start with some that have more than 10 years of experience working on reforms or implementing harm reduction models, and that's Portugal and Switzerland. And so Portugal—and I'm focusing on Europe, and then I'll talk about two Latin American examples—but so mm-hmm. Portugal 10 years ago decriminalized all drugs, and they moved their drug policy and— and drug-related issues from the Ministry of Justice to the Ministry of Health. So this was a huge paradigm shift, where they said anyone can, can carry what they need for personal use, any drugs for personal use, for up to seven days. So they didn't put a quantity that you were allowed to carry, but rather what you, as a person who used drugs, would consume in seven days. And then they created something called dissuasion committees. And these dissuasion commissions are composed of three people, a social worker, a psychologist, and a lawyer. And they have a conversation with the person who has been found carrying drugs. And through that, their goal is to bring drug users closer to institutions, not push them away, and to have a dialogue with what are the other social services that they can also offer to people who are using drugs. People who use cannabis are usually just like go with a warning, whereas people who use harder drugs are often provided with options on if they would like to seek treatment or if they need other situational solutions having to do with their housing or with job prospects. And then in Switzerland, what they did was that they created supervised injection sites where someone could shoot up and inject uh, drugs, primarily heroin in in this circumstance, in a safe space. And they also started using heroin-assisted treatment, HAT. And so these were kind of the The harm reduction models that we know well and we know that are working and that have shown concrete results in a decrease in injection drug users having contracting HIV through sharing needles and other health-related issues. Then we have countries in Latin America who are having to deal with issues that are being brought on by these policies of militarization, by the increase of power of organized criminal groups. Who sometimes are trafficking drugs and sometimes are not and i think we've all heard about uruguay being the first country to legally regulate cannabis from seed to sale and so they have really taken this and they've put it into a human rights framework they've said we are not contravening our international drug control treaties but rather we are giving precedence to our human rights treaties and we want to you know really respect the human rights of cannabis users and separate the markets and provide services to those people who are seeking other drugs that are not cannabis. So you can get cannabis through three ways. The first two are the ones that are currently functioning, which is self-cultivating like cultivating in your home, home grow, and up to you know six plants, six female plants. And then social cannabis clubs, which have really been flourishing and working quite well. And they estimate that about 3,000 people are currently getting their cannabis from the cannabis social clubs. The government run pharmacies are still a little bit slower getting started because of the the longer permitting and process that that the government is putting into place. But it's gonna be a very different model than the Colorado model or other US states in that people who are not residents will not be able to buy. There is no publicity. If you buy from a government pharmacy, there will only be five strains available and they are choosing those strains but so that there's oh, wow. two indica, mm-hmm. two sativa, and then one that's very high CBD. Mm-hmm. And then, so they're they're putting into place their recreational market uh, or their non medical market, and then they're going to work on their on their medicinal market um, because they see that the need is greater on the recreational side, and because they want to have time to really show doctors and work with them to to raise awareness about the use of cannabis products in the medical field. And so we kind of have these two different, uh, we know what harm reduction has looked like in a European high consumption model, but what in Latin America we're really looking on, and I'm sure Sanjo can speak to this a bit too, is how do we reduce the harms caused by the policies? How do we ensure that we are moving this business out of the hands of organized crime and into the hands of governments? So there's a difference in kind of the discourse and how we're moving forward when we think about harm reduction even. And then the other one I would only, I just want to briefly touch on is Ecuador, mm-hmm. which recently did, and Sanjo might be able to expand on this, which recently did a review of the people who were currently in their jails, and they changed their penal code to really allow people who had small quantities or who had been used as traffickers, or in Spanish we, we call them mules, so drug mules, and which are primarily women, who are often the heads of households, they changed the penal code and then reviewed who was currently in the prisons. And they were able to release many people, thousands of people who were there who were serving disproportionate sentences. So they really thought what's proportional to what actually happened. And, you know, by taking these women out of their families and putting them in jail, what are the consequences of that? And they reviewed that and they revised it. So I think those are some interesting and and kind of hopeful places in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, Zara. And that is a really interesting thing, too, of just that there are so many different countries that are pushing for really serious and broad-reaching reforms right now. But just how each different region is approaching it a bit differently, it seems, and that the the South American countries are kind of taking very different approaches from the European ones. And so, uh, Sanjo, could you actually talk a little bit about... What kind of causes these different regions to be approached and reformed differently? And like what kind of problems is each one facing in, in say, South America and these more heavily uh, the trafficking and transit countries and everything versus uh, Europe, which is the very high consumption ones that Zara had mentioned?
3: Yeah, you know, I think the, um, the big change that's happened um, is, is the elephant in the living room, which is the United States. Mm-hmm. And even though it's a global struggle and lots of people are fighting very hard around the world in various fronts to, to reform drug policies, empire has its privileges, right? And so mm-hmm. American activists who have been pushing to change the, the, the cultural wars upon which marijuana prohibition especially is founded upon have changed U.S. policies. And heretofore, the U.S. would not allow other countries to be flexible or, or to reinterpret treaties or, or to push the envelope. But what was the turning point was the the vote in, in Colorado and Washington State, where our own citizens, when when asked the question directly, told the government it's time to reverse gear on the drug war. Mm-hmm. By doing that, it opened up a lot of political space in Latin America, in Europe, in other countries uh, to begin to push back against uh, the, the empire, basically. And so the U.S. couldn't go to these international meetings with a straight face and tell other countries you know, where to get on and get off while their own citizens were turning their backs on the drug war. So we lost a lot of legitimacy, or, or there never was legitimacy for the drug war, but, but uh, that, that false consensus that was coerced by the U.S. has fractured profoundly. In that void, the Russians have stepped up and they're doing it for, the, I think, for their own domestic political you know, scapegoating and, and, and politics, but they're now really amping up the drug war and wanting to blame the US and NATO, for instance, for why they have so much heroin in their country, uh, because we mm. refuse to spray in Afghanistan. But in this context, a lot of countries, particularly in Latin America, but also Europe and, and other places are pushing back against this false coerced consensus. So it, the, the global mm. drug war operated on what's called the Vienna consensus, where the Commission on Narcotics Drugs meets, and it was always kind of a, a gentleman's club, uh, mostly men, that, you know, we don't really need to vote on these things. We, we will operate by consensus because everyone agrees the drug wars, <laughs> that the drugs are terrible things. Well, it was a public consensus and therefore a coerced consensus with clawback and repercussions if you dared cross the U.S. And now that our voters have told our own government, take a hike, stop doing this, they, they can now express their, their views more honestly and, and push back against that. And so the consensus is broken.
0: And so, Sanjo and Zara, you both referred to these international treaties that are being reshaped by America's own policies, um, especially with the vote by Colorado and Washington to legalize uh, recreational use of marijuana. Can you just, for our many listeners who may not be as familiar with the treaties, kind of expand on? what the basics of those international agreements are and how America has kind of given other countries more space to be flexible in their interpretations. Um, I thought it was particularly interesting how, uh, Zara, you mentioned Uruguay is arguing or taking the position that their human rights treaties take precedence over these drug treaties.
2: Well, I mean, Sanheng can also jump in at any point. There are three treaties that form the basis of the drug control system at an international level. The first one is the 1961 single convention on drugs. So they were trying to make one that there would only be one treaty. This was also coming from, as Sanjo mentioned, this consensus or this idea that we can all get together and we're all gonna be on board because we all agree that drugs are bad. And so we have to we have to keep them out of the hands of, you know, young people and anybody, you know, vulnerable. People. And so mm-hmm. they started with this idea that they they would be able to eradicate drugs if they only did the proper things, if every member state took these steps. And so in 1961, they created this single convention, but it primarily dealt with, obviously, cannabis products, coca products, and opium and opiate products. And so anything derived from those three plants. And if you think about the people who were in power in that time, you know, many of these countries were actually run by dictators or military dictators in Latin America. And so there was also this sense of, now that we look at these, we're like, these are really out of date. You know, the people were not actually, their voices were not actually present during these. And then only 10 years later, they decided that they needed another convention, the 1971 convention. And that one really comes from the hippie movement and the Mm -hmm. counterculture movement and these new substances that were being brought into primarily the United States, so these more synthetic, you know, LSD and and these other ones. And then the third convention is the 1988 convention, which was really about transnational crime and the globalization of the drug market, and that, you know, it's more about trafficking and what does it all look like as they move drugs from one side to the other. And the other thing that the 1988 convention does, which the 61 and the 71 put so much of the burden of responsibility, the first two, on producing countries. So it was all on the supply. And that was where everybody needed to focus on eradication. And so that really took the burden of responsibility off of the United States and Europe as the highest consuming countries. And in the 88, it was actually Mexico led along with a few other countries that pushed to in some way criminalize users because they said we have been doing everything we can and it hasn't worked because while the demand stays high, we will continue to supply. And so it was the first time that they really talked about you have, you have to go against users and consumption. But I think that what's interesting here is that the U.S. has been pushing that these treaties have flexibility, that decriminalization is allowed. And these treaties allowed for medical and scientific uses of all of these drugs, but not recreational. And so the United States has been saying, there's a lot of space here. You guys can do really almost anything you want. And you see, we're not breaking the conventions because the federal government still has cannabis as being illegal. And it's only on a state level. And because we have dual sovereignty, we can play in this in this kind of gray space. And for Uruguay, since they're the first country to do it, they really can't take that same position. And a lot of folks who speak on this issue have also been saying, why is the international narcotics control board cuz they're the ones who technically oversee the legal drug market you know legal heroin medical heroin medical mm-hmm. morphine you know all of these legal drugs they oversee who gets how much and and that sort of thing and they've really been coming down very hard on Uruguay whereas they haven't been saying as much to the United States and so it's like this is a complicit agreement between the U.S. and the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime that their model is OK, but that the Uruguayan model is outside of, of what's allowed in the conventions.
1: Hmm. And is that because that just due to the kind of unique quirks of American federalism in terms of that our, our federal government is the signatory to the treaty and isn't the one actually doing the regulating of marijuana and that it's at the state level or is or, this more of just kind of like an excuse that the U.S. kind of conveniently has just because it's the most powerful one and this is kind of just its justification?
0: Yeah, just as San Jose said, is it uh, more of the empire has its privileges?
3: Yeah, and treaties and are notoriously printed on sheets of rubber and you can interpret mm-hmm. them or reinterpret them by stretching them in various ways. Uh, so there's a lot of wiggle room in these things, but they ought to change. It's going to be hard to change, but they ought to. And, now, and I think you need to, we need to question the 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 foundations, the assumptions upon which these treaties were founded, mm-hmm. particularly the social norms. And go back to the, the, the foundational 1961 uh, Single Convention on Narcotics. Look at the, the the who wrote those treaties. Uh, primarily men, primarily, you know, I think uh, uh, white men. And the norms they, they, they believed in at the time are, are totally unacceptable today in today's modern political mm-hmm. discourse with regard to the role of women, people of color, LGBT, indigenous peoples. If you took a speech given in that era politically and replayed it today, that politician would probably have to, to apologize profusely, if not resign outright, because our norms have moved on. Imagine uh, the era of mad Men or Selma. And having those social norms uh, remain <laughs> constant for this long—that's what they're asking us to do with 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 drug policy, particularly with cannabis. We're we're coming out of the reefer madness era, not quite as bad as reefer madness, but but not much better. I, you know, went to elementary school in the '70s uh, in, in in Northern Virginia. I was shown in health class films of kids: if you if you take LSD, your babies will have uh, deformed chromosomes, and you'll have cyclops babies. And they showed us, of course, a baby <laughs> with, with an eye with a oh huge stalk coming out of its head. And how many of those do you see around today, you know, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) given how many people have used LSD? Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, it's as though no views should evolve ever. According to these drug warriors, it should be set in stone.
0: So we've talked about how Colorado and Washington legalizing marijuana kind of created the space for other countries to interpret international treaties, you know, more flexibly. And so this this kind of more recent change in international drug laws does come from the U.S., but at the federal level, and this kind of plays into what we're talking about with the double sovereignty but at the federal level and even at the state level, many lawmakers keep using the international treaties kind of either as their reason or an excuse to not further expand on legalization or decriminalization of other drugs. In what ways is what other countries doing... How will that affect, you know, the conversation here domestically about our own drug laws or how can we take the next step if everyone is waiting for the U.S. to act first, but we won't act beyond what we've done already?
2: Yeah, I think it's I know that down here in Mexico that many of us and many of the legislators who've been working on this issue for a few years, a big a big turning point, at least from our perspective, will be California because it'll be the first border state that in uh,
1: 2016
2: yeah. we we assume that in 2016 california will <laughs> regulate the, the cannabis market for non-medical use and we see that as is you know it's a huge economy in the world and that's going to be kind of a turning point but i think there's also been an interesting discussion that's been happening within kind of the international world on if we focus too much on cannabis we're going to forget about these other Drugs and other plants Mm -hmm. that are also being criminalized and that also have a huge part of the market. And so I know from Latin America, we really want the discussion to be also focused on how do we talk about coca based products and that Mm -hmm. have less that are less harmful than cocaine, but that are still the stimulant that someone is seeking when they seek out cocaine. Because we know that the most dangerous part about using cocaine is really that it's been adulterated with other substances and you don't know exactly what you're taking. Mm
1: -hmm. And so So it would be like coca paste and just chewing on the leaf directly, that sort of thing.
2: Right, right. Or I mean, Evo Morales goes to the U.N. every few years. Well, he went, I think, three years ago and I saw him there. And and, I mean, he came out and he just showed all of these products that were made out of coca. And so and Mm -hmm. it was, you know, 15 different products. The EU was completely horrified by it because they're like how can you do product placement at the UN
3: <laughs> but he
2: you know he he's like we have we have a whole gamut of of products that can be offered that are safe that can you know provide a little bit of stimulus i mean we're all drinking sitting around drinking coffee and thinking that that's mm-hmm. you know okay and it is okay but also if somebody wants to drink a coca tea that should also be okay and so um i think from latin america i mean really Coca and cocaine are the biggest space that we now need to kind of chip away at and see how do we begin a discussion about that. Although I think that might need to come more at a regional level. And um, we have a few spoilers in the region, like Cuba, Venezuela, and Chile, for the most part, who as some people, and Peru, as some countries move the discourse in a very progressive way. They kind of push us back. So just as in the United States, you have states that are suing Colorado, in Latin America, we also have countries that are, are saying, Nah, we're not quite, you know, we don't want to go there yet, even though they're coca producers or they, you know, are engaged in some, obviously, no one is free from illicit drug activity.
3: One of the reasons that drug policy has been so difficult to reform or, or to succeed is that it is one of the most interdisciplinary issues that, that confronts us uh, as a society. And the difficulty is also what offers us opportunity for change. Because it is so interdisciplinary, there are other, other disciplines that are now getting on board and learning about their connections with the war on drugs. So, yes, there is uh, uh, these U.N. drug treaties, but there are also treaties and conventions on the rights of women, on indigenous people, uh, about human rights, about the rights of children. And so all these other things come into play, particularly when we're talking about eradication and, and, and supply-side producing countries. And, you know, the, the aerial spraying of people, the World Health Organization uh, just came out and linked the active ingredient and in, in the uh, the spray we're using in Colombia, uh, glyphosate, is linked to cancer. That has now pushed the Colombian government to stop using that chemical to spray coca crops, which is, you know, it's been a a two-decade-old struggle to try to stop that badness. But it came from the WHO, not from, uh, you know, the State Department or traditional drug policy organizations. Um, So there are lots of different side entrances to this issue.
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, that for me is kind of an opening to just mention that in 2016, there will be a United Nations General Assembly special session on Mm -hmm. drugs, the Ungas. So if anyone hears about the Ungas, this is what it is. It's going to happen April 19th to the 21st in New York at the UN. So 420 will be um, <laughs> some can be celebrated timing. in New York. Yes, I do not think that anyone in Vienna was thinking about that when they put the dates on this meeting, but um, it <laughs> might be have. a way to bring some people out. Yeah. And so this this special session, the last one that happened was in 1998. And the the next one shouldn't have happened for another two years, But Mexico, Colombia, and Guatemala asked the secretary general to bring it up a few years because of the the devastating consequences that are currently being experienced uh, primarily by Mexico, but also by Guatemala and the rest of Central America. I mean, in the last seven years, more than 100,000 people have been killed in Mexico, 26,000 people at the very—I mean, we don't have numbers. We don't have exact numbers, but 26,000 people have been disappeared. That means we don't know where they are. And hundreds of thousands have been displaced. And in Colombia, I mean, they have also had all of these very devastating experiences, but now like about 15 years ago. So it's it's they're beginning their process to, to kind of transition. So these Latin American countries asked for this special session on drugs. It's going to happen in 2016. And part of the work of the Global Commission has been to say it shouldn't only be the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime that speaks on this issue the World Health Organization needs to play a big role in this, and they've been isolated in years past. And so that it's important that UNAIDS speak on this, that UNICEF speak on it, UN women, that as that there's, that there's the High Commissioner on, on Human Rights comes out. And so mm-hmm. all of these, we're trying to get some sort of system-wide coherence, because when you look at the UN goals, like the bigger goals of the health and welfare of, of, of the world, drug policy oftentimes goes directly against those and drug control measures goes against the health and welfare of many people. And so Mm -hmm. we're kind of trying to turn it on its head and say, this deserves a huge debate. And the secretary general said, we need to come to this with all options on the table. Now that hasn't necessarily always happened, but this is an opportunity where local examples can be taken to an international level and shared and, and there needs to be a clear evaluation of what has worked and what hasn't. And how do we be begin to, to speak about this issue on an international level? We don't think that a lot will change. As Sanjo said, the change comes from a country or from, a, from even from a locality. But what we do want is that there's a debate and that it shows that the consensus has been broken, that this false Vienna consensus has been irrevocably broken and that we need to be able to move forward so that countries can choose a drug policy that works best for their country, taking into account all of these things that San Jose mentioned, women, people of color, vulnerable and marginalized community. What are the people who use drugs in that community actually using? How do we best meet their needs? So it's an exciting time to be working on international drug policy. And I think we're really going to be needing U.S. activists and advocates to be really part of this too and to bring out your voice and to get involved in this in this ungas that's coming up. So it's just an, a broad invitation of, Come to New York and, and we will plan something and you guys should plan something and, and we can mm-hmm. have a, and make a, and, and have the public narrative be about us and to be about the reform movement and not Russia and China and Indonesia and kind of the, the people, the countries that are taking it in a very um, punitive and uh, closed kind of space.
1: -hmm. And
3: it has to be. I think you know, it's not just the UN uh, various UN agencies coming to to our aid and speaking out, and and whether it's UN Development Program or World Health Organization, but also civil society and and NGOs. And these the government officials who will be there need to see civil society voting with their feet and mobilizing, and that it Mm -hmm. does cut across so many different interests and issue areas. That it's time to take this, take a comprehensive view of drug policy, not just just fiddling around the edges.
1: Yeah, and that is so interesting, just in terms of the way that just bureaucracies are set up for the enforcement of these sorts of anti-drug laws and everything. Of just as you said, Zara, that it's the the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. It's not about drugs and public health or anything. So right. even though I, I think in the past, I know Kofi Annan had said. Uh, that we need to—I think he had even pushed for it, uh, at least decriminalization, if not full uh, legalization, and treating drugs as a public health system. But it, it is interesting that the UN is pretty much in the same way as the U.S. has with uh, having drugs under the DEA instead of under a more actually you know, science-based agency. And you had also just... kind of uh, hinted at this, but in terms of the what we can actually expect of coming out of UNGAS Is there any hope of actually, say, renegotiating these treaties or anything? Or is it more of just the very beginnings of a discussion and that'll that'll come down the pike later?
2: Well, I think there are are several organizations that are advocating for treaty amendments. Uh, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition is one of those. I guess what some folks in the reform community are worried about is that if you go and try and reform the treaties right now, it might, you could make the trees more restrictive than they already are. I mean, I don't know uh, if that's yeah. possible, but let's just say that, <laughs> so, so mm-hmm. in 2016, we'll have this UNGASS, and then in 2019, there's another important review of something called the political declaration. So it's all these UN documents that, you know, they write, and then 10 years later, they review, and they see how is it going. And so the 2016 for us is is really about opening the discussion breaking the taboo, like how do we make sure that countries are discussing this? And then in 2019, it will be more of the technical piece of how do we go about making proposals. And so potentially from the 2016, UNGAS could come like an expert group that could make recommendations for the 2019 review. And just really quickly, Kofi Annan was secretary general in 1998. And he said, you know, a world free of drugs, we can do it now in 2015 he was he participated in a side event we did at the world health assembly and mm-hmm. he he's part of the global commission and so he laid out we advocate for the regulation of all plant-based drugs because we realize that it's better for governments to take control in fact you regulate because drugs are risky not because they're safe he i mean we have his uh, we have this whole speech up on our website globalcommissionondrugs.org and it is comprehensive concise clear on why this has to change and why we have to do things differently and when you look at who was in power in 1998 many of those heads of state who attended the last ongas now form part of the global commission the president of portugal the president of mexico colombia brazil mm-hmm. president of switzerland so it's like these very high level heads of state have realized we need to do something different and that's what makes kind of we need them speaking about this and we need people on the ground, and we need civil society, as San Jose said, they're saying, we are not okay with this. Because right now, you go to Vienna, and civil society, we're there as much as we can, but it's so far away. And so in New York, we need to have as many people there saying, end the drug war. This is enough. We've had enough.
0: This is a great segue to my last question, and it's somewhat tangential to this roundtable, because I feel like we focused a lot more on the legal aspects of... Um, international drug policy and law. But I'm really curious while we have both of you here, how much you think cultural use of these different substances will factor into those discussions and whether that will help shape the discussion. I know, Zara, you've talked a lot about plant-based drugs and how they're much less harmful in those forms. Coca paste was brought up in various forms of uses of coca that have been a traditional remedy for especially you know, altitude sickness in very high mountain countries. I want to bring up something else that we haven't touched on yet, but the Rastafari sacred use of cannabis and how that hasn't really been legitimized. It's not one of the few uses that the UN will recognize as a legitimate use of a substance. And whether, you know, certain Western or American values that say pharmaceuticals are okay, but plants are not, you know, has shaped the discussion and whether that you know, might come up during the UNGAS discussions?
3: You know, in many ways, I think demographics is destiny. And in that sense, the demographics of, of drug policy shifts has been a long ways coming. You could see it coming from a long ways away, but it was difficult to predict exactly when that tipping point would be. But if you look at the origins of much of the foundations of the U.S. Uh, modern U.S. drug war in our generation, in our lifetimes, comes from the 1960s and the cultural wars that happened then, especially the the boomer generation, right? And so where one stood during the Vietnam War often determined where where one stood on other pressing social issues, divisive social issues of the day, Uh, racial integration, sexual liberation, women's rights, drugs, rock and roll, everything else, you know, counterculture and the war itself. And that bitter, bitter uh, generational division that schism in our culture has festered for about four decades. And so our politics was dominated by these wedge issues, of which the drug war has been a very important one. But it resonated with that generation particularly. And millennials and people who are slightly older but but you know younger than the baby boomers, it doesn't resonate. These are not the issues that we care about, uh, whether it's gay marriage or marijuana or a lot of the other divisive issues. There will be other wedge issues that evolve for this generation, but the old ones are wearing off and they're losing their traction. And I think that signals the death knell for a lot of the drug war hysteria. We'll still have the drug war in diff- different incarnations, but a lot of that— that generational baggage will be left behind finally.
2: Yeah, I would hope so. I think that also we're looking at it, just as Senju has said, from really a multidisciplinary approach, which really looks at the economics of what it means to incarcerate people and what does, you know. So I think that the rational side is winning out instead of the hysteria, which has been a huge transition in the U.S. And we're hoping that that can trickle down a bit uh, into some of the countries in Latin America which tend to be more conservative. The one thing I wanted to just mention is that, you know, Jamaica recently decriminalized and passed a law that would allow for medical, therapeutic and religious use of cannabis. And so the the minister of justice there his name is 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 Mark Golding and he's just an excellent ally and has has been speaking out a lot at these UN forums. And they are exactly trying to include rastafarian culture because obviously it's a huge part of their country and they also are broadening this whole idea of what is medical use versus what is therapeutic use because if you think about therapeutic it's like well if if somebody comes home and instead of drinking a glass of wine to relax they smoke some cannabis to relax that's a therapeutic use but it's not necessarily a medical condition that needs to be met by this plant Mm -hmm. and so they are really looking at what does decriminalization look like on a larger scale and also medical and religious use. And so, and a way to incorporate small scale growers because they have a lot of growers. And so they're trying to figure out how do we bring them into the system too. And they decriminalized two ounces, which is 56 grams, which was a really large amount relative to some of the other countries. So it's really been interesting to see how they are incorporating these cultural, spiritual, and religious uses. And I think it's going to have a big impact. The other thing I would say is that One of the things they're doing is they're going to allow people who have medical licenses from other jurisdictions to come in and buy and to pay for a a permit to be able to use their medical permit from, you know, Colorado or California and to be able to Mm -hmm. use it in Jamaica to be able to buy cannabis there. So it's going to be an interesting, some little bit of tourism, but, you know, also Mm -hmm. understanding that you have gone through some sort of uh, process in your own jurisdiction.
1: Yeah, that is really interesting. I hadn't realized that uh, Jamaica was allowing for uh, any any reciprocity or anything, so that's fantastic.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's going slow, but that's what they're in right now.
1: And yeah, I feel like in general, I do like to agree with Sanjo in terms of the the demographic shifts just making this issue a bit of an inevitability, and at least the very long run. But of course, that doesn't mean that there won't be other hiccups along the way or there's always potential for different events or things happening that can uh, totally derail reform. And even if it is inevitable, it's always great to bring it all bring it along a little bit quicker too. And so uh, to wrap up the interview, we always like to ask uh, any of our guests that we have on to just give a call to action to our listeners, because while this show is primarily educational and we want to teach people all about drugs and drug policy, we also want to make them into uh, actors and activists that are going to be helping bring about policy shifts in reform. and reform. If there's one thing that you could have all of our listeners do today after uh, after wrapping up this podcast, uh, what would you ask them to do to help move the dial a little bit towards reform?
3: Well, you know, history is made by, by those who show up. And the best way to make sure nothing changes is to sit at home on your couch and maybe you know, sign <laughs> uh, an, an email petition or something. But it's important for people to speak up and to communicate directly with the representatives. It is not only uh, your, your right, but um, it's in many ways your obligation if you complain about these things. They won't know that you care about these issues unless you express yourselves. Your elected officials do not... Commission polls every time there's an, a vote in front of Congress you have to tell them uh, and so it's important to do that if you and, and learn how to do that so one way to do that you can follow me on Twitter occasionally I give um, uh, you know uh, Twitter chats on, on how to get involved and how to actually um, uh, engage and get some traction uh, for your activism uh, but this is we've gotten this far largely because people have taken uh, action and that momentum is only building
1: Excellent and on Twitter you're at Sanho tree is that right? Exactly effects
2: yeah I would just say that we are at a, a very interesting and powerful moment in drug policy reform history and we're seeing more movement on the these issues than we've seen in the last 20 years and that this is a, a crucial and important and exciting time to join in on the discussions and so there are several ways I mean Get your plane ticket or your bus ticket or your plan your road trip mm. to New York for April 19th to 21st. There will be activities that are going on. There will be protests. You know, we're going to plan, we're hoping that there will be as many people there. And just like San Jose said, it's all about showing up. So when you if you get there, I promise there will be other people who will also be there and we can you know, share experiences from different countries, what's going on, DPA will plan events. I mean, there are going to be things to participate in during that time. And the more people are there, the stronger it is shown that this has not worked and that it is not worth it to keep on doing the same thing, that we need to change course and that this is an opportunity. I mean, I think that this will be a historic moment that people can really be part of. And if Students for Sensible Drug Policy is planning their conference to be in Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area the weekend Mm -hmm. before the Ungas, go to the conference and then go up to New York with all of your new friends uh, to (laughs) to be part of the the Ungas. So I think that there's a really, there's a very concrete call to action that you can be there and you can be part of this, this moment. And also, I mean, if you want... There's always opportunities that can be found on a local level, and I'm sure that there are going to be groups that are organizing to go to that. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm also at Zara, Z-A-R-A-S-N-A-P-P, Snap, at Zara Snap on Twitter. And I'd love to continue the dialogue with any of the listeners.
0: Well, thank you so much, Zara Snap and Tree, for joining us for this roundtable discussion on international drug policy laws and the treaties. And thank you so much for your very powerful calls to action. I hope our listeners will take your words to heart.
3: Thank you.
2: And we'll see all of you there, too, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Perfect.
1: Thanks for listening to the second episode of This Week in Drugs hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and we'd like to thank Zara Snap and San Ho Tree once again for joining us for the discussion. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more info about the show, bonus content that we couldn't fit in the episode, and sneak peeks at future shows. We hope you tune in next week, and always remember, stay sensible.